0: Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Hey, Bruce, we got a lot of mileage last podcast out of the Athlon Top 50 college football players of the last 50 years. I guess it was a pretty interesting discussion for people, and we got some emails about it, but we also got a lot of great other emails. So what do you say we make this
1: an all-mailbag episode? That's a brilliant idea, Stu. Before we can start with our mailbag from our our outstanding listeners. Let's have one, one mailbag thing from the executive editor of Athlon Sports just for context. Sure. He responded to our, con- our conversation. He pointed out that only eight of 16 panelists actually voted for Marcus Mariota at all, which shocks me a little bit. Um, and he said my vo- high vote of having Mariota in the top 10 was the only reason why he actually made the top 50. I think uh, um,
0: he should send you some sort of appreciation.
1: That should be Marcus. Yes,
0: Marcus. Marcus should, should send you maybe something a little bit from his home state or maybe from Nashville. Just to, yeah,
1: some macadamia. Some yeah. um, interesting that uh, you had two outside votes. You were the only person to vote for Christian McCaffrey, which kind of surprises me. I mean, I didn't have him on mine, but, you know, he that's not an outlandish one. And you were the only person to vote for the head coach at your alma mater, Pat Fitz.
0: The last one doesn't surprise me, but yeah, I mean, if, if Barry Sanders is number two, I believe, why wouldn't the guy who broke his single-season all-purpose record be one of the 50 best?
1: No, there's that's a valid argument. Look, and the reason why I stopped short of saying I'm shocked about Mariota, who I would argue Mariota statistically is the is the greatest college quarterback uh, that we've seen just from a statistic standpoint of playing at a high level and putting up the numbers he put up, um but I have a hard time, you know, knocking anybody else because I in retrospect should have had on Marshall Falk. I should have had on Michael Vick. Um I can't believe, by I, the way, I can't believe
0: Michael Vick didn't make the actual top fifty list. To me, he's one of the transcendent players of during the time that we've been covering. You think back to that national championship game against Florida State, he just took the sport by storm. We hadn't really seen obviously there had been option quarterbacks, but there hadn't been A, you know, super fast runner who could also throw at a high level quite like Michael Vick. How is he not on that
1: list? Yeah, I mean, look, there were guys like that. I don't want to say he was the only one. I mean, Randall Cunningham was a freak of nature, too. Had a huge arm, obviously could could uh, paralyze defense. But he played at UNLV. This is a guy who put Virginia Tech. it's, It's a stretch to say put him on the map, but he obviously elevated that program. Uh, I was the only guy to have Jameis Winston on my ballot, which kind of surprises me.
0: Yeah, that surprises me too. On the topic of Mariota, real quick, one reader did correct us on something. This is Jay Horsley. I sustew, not Mariota. I I said he was the most efficient passer we've seen. He said, no, that would be Baker Mayfield last year at Oklahoma. And that is correct. Uh, I don't know if Mariota had the record, the single season record or not, but the highest rating he posted during his career was his last season his rating that year was 181.75 it's pretty impressive baker mayfield wilson, shattered that russell,
1: last year russell wilson had a big number too the only thing is and look baker mayfield can run and he, he gives teams problems with his legs marcus mariota though was on a different level in terms of you know what he did in that offense as a running threat
0: you are correct russell wilson had the fbs record in 2011 191 Point seven eight, and Mayfield broke that last year. One ninety six, point three eight. It seems like we're closing in on the first ever two hundred passer rating.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's let's get deeper into the mailbag because uh, I know we got some good stuff here. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail.
0: Okay, Michael Wayne Bratton. Hey, Bruce and Stu, I just finished up the podcast regarding the fifty best. Are there any college football players you think had the potential to make the list, but for whatever reason got derailed along the way and didn't make it? Guys that immediately jump out to me are Tyron Matthew, who was a legitimate Heisman contender before being booted from LSU. In fact, he did uh, make New York that one year. And Maurice Claret, who started his career as one of the most successful true freshmen I can recall before prematurely ending his college career and challenging the NFL draft rules. Those are both pretty good suggestions.
1: Yeah, those are. I mean, look towards that end. I think you could maybe put Mike Williams on that case. The USC Mike Williams left early, got kind of caught in limbo. Um, You know, we talked about Matt Leinart, our friend, and uh, you know Reggie Bush. He was a big part of that that team. He was a powerhouse and he put up huge numbers. Um, You know, when he said Claret, I mean, this is. I think this is a really good question. Um, You remember how like big? And this might be procedural. Andy Katzenmore had a massive freshman presence, right? It was just a huge – and then all of a sudden I felt like it kind of – just kind of teetered out on him a little bit. Well, did he
0: actually not – I mean did he get worse as a player or was it the academic stuff that just kind of seemed – I,
1: I don't know. I, I don't know. I, you know. I wasn't close enough to know exactly what what undercut the rest of his, his college run there. I think what you also get into – and maybe this is a function of why neither Johnny Manziel or Michael Vick made this was – you have a lot of guys now who could who could fall into almost that two year wonder where they have they have a good run and then they're out, um, you know. So maybe they only play two years, especially if they redshirt that first year, and so two, there's less of a body of work. Two running
0: backs came to mind for me, uh, both of whom got derailed by injuries. T- uh, Todd Gurley, I thought Todd Gurley when he was at his best, was just a fantastic running back, but then he had, well, first he had that suspension for the merchandise, and then he had, you know, an ACL injury. We didn't really see him in peak form for that long of his career. And the other, also in the SEC East, uh, Marcus Lattimore. He started his career, he had a fantastic freshman season, and he never really followed up on that, and then obviously he had the devastating injury.
1: Hey, I had one I thought of in this. This is kind of this came in our Twitter feeds. Um, and I don't want to, tr- tr- you know, trump the mailbag process, but um, somebody had mentioned David Pollack and he was a three time All-American. I mean, he's a former colleague of mine and I didn't I, I obviously wouldn't intentionally slight him. Uh, I I really didn't think of David, you know, and when I thought, you know, about what he did from a career standpoint, you know he's obviously ultra productive. His NFL career was 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 cut short because of a uh, was was cut short because of a neck injury. Um, you know I wondered, well, you know what? Derek Barnett is a guy. who will look back, put up huge numbers in his three years at Tennessee. You know, in terms of tackles for losses and, and sacks. Um, did you give consideration to Pollock?
0: I did, and I don't remember enough to tell you why he didn't make the cut, other than. You know, I think in all of these kind of awards, we tend to have a bias toward offensive players. And so it's almost like you had to you had to be even even better than outstanding to make. Can an I out you on something defensive player?
1: You had in your top 50 a guy who's largely forgotten on the TV side, uh, a former colleague of yours, Trev Alberts. You had him. Why Trev Alberts, not David Pollock? Oof,
0: you put me on the spot like that. I'd have to go back and dig up. I mean, I, 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 he, David Pollock probably could have made this list. He, he, I do remember him being very dominant and winning a whole lot of awards and making a whole lot of All-American teams. That was certainly the case for Trev Alberts. David Pollock, 36 sacks in his career. Didn't Terrell Suggs in one season have... Like 27. There was had, a player... He had just you, an absurd... You know, I don't know if he could have made this list or not. I just remember one year, he was so far and above any sack total
1: I'd ever seen. Yeah, well, do you do you ever hear the name Ezekiel Gadson? Yeah, he was a tiny, uh, like almost like a safety playing outside linebacker. At Pitt, I want to say one year he may have had, you know, same thing like Derek Thomas, like twenty-seven or twenty-eight sacks. So continuing with the top fifty theme,
0: this one I admit I had not thought of, and it is fascinating. Carrick Thomas, gentlemen, I noticed on the top fifty list there were no Bama players. From the 10 years of dominance under Nick Saban, probably as strong a decade by a program ever, is it? Is it really possible there isn't a single top 50 player there? It's an outstanding point.
1: Hey, by the way, just can I finish while we're on Alabama? Yeah. Uh, David Pollock, 36 sacks. Derek Thomas, 52 sacks. Oof. Yeah, I
0: don't That's think like there's Derek ever Thomas any question for anybody five. that yeah, Derek Thomas right. should be on
1: there. Um, so the only Alabama player, if I'm... To be correct, that we each had an Alabama player from this era. Mine was C.J. Mosley. Yours was Barrett Jones. Yes, I did have Barrett Jones on there.
0: Well, let's think about it this way, and this is going to be a tough question to answer, but I think a fascinating one. Who is the best player of the Nick Alabama player of the Nick Saban era? I'm just going to rattle off some contenders off the top of my head. I think you'd have to first of all. Immediately consider the two Heisman winners, uh, Mark Ingram and Derrick Henry. Amari Cooper was a finalist. I would put Amari uh,
1: Cooper on there, uh, high up there. And uh, didn't play
0: I think years. Amari Cooper would probably be the offensive guy. I mean, he was incredible his last season. Uh, oh, but Julio Jones, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tough call. I don't think Julio Jones put up big stats necessarily, but he was obviously, you see how talented he is. The problem on defense is there's just so many candidates. And I think that might be what's, why this happened, right? There's there's not an obvious, uh, this guy was definitely the best defensive player of Nick Saban era. There's so how Where would we even start? I know. So it's you true. for you, it's Ruben Foster, though. I'm no, sorry. No, for me, it was no, C.J. No, no, no. Mosley. For me, it was C.J. Mosley. You think C.J. Mosley was the best defensive player Saban's had?
1: Yeah, and in my defense... This is, an, this is more excuse than explanation. I hate to say, like, some of it was formed by that week I spent with Texas A&M staff where they were watching these guys, and there was such, such admiration for what C.J. Mosley could do in all facets of the game. He was great covering backs. He was great against the run. The other thing that I think is in my head, and I thought about this when I listened to our podcast back uh, yesterday, was... You mentioned when I kind of challenged you on both on Brian Bosworth about like the awards he won, and I was thinking about it. One of the most decorated defensive players in the last ten years was Manti Te'o. Neither one of us, I think, gave him a thought. You know, and he's gone on to the NFL and been an average player. You know, he left. He was at the Chargers. He was okay, and now he's with the Saints. But whatever. But my point on that was Manti Te'o for that whole year was built up to be. You know, I'm not saying he was Lawrence Taylor-like in college football circles, but he was, a, he was a huge presence that year for his off-field story, but certainly for the on-the-field help lead Notre Dame to the national title game. C.J. Mosley was so much of a better player when you watch the two of them on the field, and I think that probably is like a knee-jerk in my head of differentiating why I was felt compelled to include C.J. Mosley on there. So what I'm going to do right
0: now is rattle off, and there's a lot of names here, all of the first round defensive players under Saban, stop me. Don't don't necessarily react to each one, but stop me if there's one that gives you pause and think, wait a minute, maybe I could have had him uh, instead of CJ Mosley. Okay, ready? Up. Yep. Marlon Humphrey, Jonathan Allen, Reuben
1: Foster. Uh not, uh not first round, but high second round. Reggie Ragland. Uh, Jonathan Allen would be the one because he was multiple year. Like Reuben Foster. You know, shed all the weight and matured in the last year. I mean, it was terrific this year, but that would, you know, I I, I don't know. Jonathan Allen was You know, another idea that problem these
0: guys are running into is that there's so many of them that they end up only really starring for Alabama for one or two years. You don't get a three- or four-year standout right. Alabama defensive player. They're all off to the pros. Okay, Landon Collins, there's your C.J. Mosley, HaHa Clinton Dix, D. Milner, um... Mark Barron, no. Drake Kirkpatrick, Dante Hightower, Marcel Darius, uh, Rolando McClain, Kareem Jackson was a first-round pick. Yeah. And that's, that's it. Um, let me think about this first. I, I don't know if it's just like the further back you go, the more prestige that it seems to be attached... But I think I would be inclined to say one of the older. I would be inclined to say Rolando McClain or uh, Dante Hightower.
1: Uh, I would say either Jonathan Allen, or I stay with C.J. Mosley. If I had defense, and if I go offense, I would say Ryan Kelly
0: or Amari Cooper. You know who I didn't have in there? A. Robinson, who we both loved when he was in college. Um, all of this just is a way – now you see why none of them made the top 50. If you can't even agree on who the best one or two defensive players were during that time, how are you going to have one of them be in the top 50? The guys that are in the top 50
1: are legends in the history of their program. Hey, by the way, when I'm looking at the Michael Wayne Bratton story and I'm keep – you know, like I'm just looking at the story. I'm sorry, the email, um, and I'm seeing Honey Badger and he was fantastic, you know. But neither one of us had Patrick Peterson. Also, Patrick right. Peterson was was phenomenal. And uh, you know, there wasn't a like, I don't know how many LSU guys made that group. You know, so it's uh, it's hard. I mean, Glenn, it's, there's only 50, 50 players, one per year, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, Glenn Dorsey, he was really good. Uh, okay, Maron My- Landry too. My turn. Uh, This is from Lucas in Nevada. Hey, Stuart and Bruce. I just got caught up on the last few podcasts. I have a few questions and comments. Stuart mentioned that there are only about 15 schools that can actually win a national title. Which schools are those? Are they the same as Stuart's Kings? We will get to that in a second. Let me finish this question. Stuart and Brady Quinn should do a new father's podcast, especially if you get the athletes that are dads and coaches that are dads. I like the image of Josh Rosen literally being in Bruce's backyard. Um, that was probably not the best use
0: of literal. He's not like yeah. camping you – know, he's not like living in a tent in your backyard.
1: No, he, first of all, Manhattan I really Beach. don't have a backyard, but I would walk past the tennis courts that Josh Rosen would play on all the time every day when I go to the gym. So,
0: Yeah. I mean Matt uh, Beach is not that big and he is uh, from there. Okay. Great timing. He, he sent this email without even knowing that I was about to publish the 2017 edition of the Kings, Barons, Knights, and Peasants. This went up on Thursday on FoxSports.com. Did that predate Game of Thrones? It did, actually. It's, it, I mean, the original version was 2007. And I honestly don't remember why I chose a feudal system um, other than I would imagine it was because, you know, you think college football royalty so, kings had to be in there. But I honestly don't remember how I came up with this system, but it caught on. Um, you know, it's cool. I, as I mentioned in the column, when you write on the internet, you, you know, it comes and goes. Like your story's up and people read it and then on to the next one. Very few of them endure. And for whatever reason, this one, I mean, I get asked about it all the time. When are you going to do the next one? When are you going to do the next one? Well, here's the next one. And so, to answer his question, yeah, it is, a, it is, does uh closely parallel the um prestige list all right schools that i think are capable of winning a national championship i'll just rattle them off and we'll see what the final total comes to okay alabama clemson florida florida state lsu miami michigan hmm should i include notre Dame or not
1: uh i'm gonna say no you have a school in there later that I was surprised you had on it, but go ahead.
0: So I'm gonna, so Notre Dame is probably going to be the only one of the kings that I don't include as one of the ones I think could win it uh, right now. Ohio State, Oklahoma, Penn State, Texas, USC. So that's 12. And then I would also include Auburn since they've done it recently. Uh-huh. Georgia, that's 14. Definitely. Um, that's it. That's your list. That's the 14 teams
1: that are playing for the National Team. So playbook. somebody better break the news to Chris Peterson. Hmm. Can Washington win the National Team? What's championship? interesting is you don't even have Washington in the second tier.
0: Right, but as I mentioned at the end, you know, the the, the playoff breakthrough came just last year. I would imagine if we're doing this again five years from now, he will have – I fully believe they're going to be doing this for a while. And five years from now, we will.
1: I will have moved them up. Uh, where was where was Penn State on your rankings last year? Remember, this is Same. every
0: five years. So Where would to, they have been last in two th- year? Oh, last year? I bet I would have seriously considered demoting them. Because okay, I mean, in yeah.
1: 2012, I wrote in that one... They hadn't won an outright conference title before last year in like 23 years or two, maybe something like
0: that. Well, and the bigger issue was in 2012, the Jerry Sandusky thing broke in 2011. In 2012... For all we knew, they were going to just go into oblivion for the next 10 years. So if I kind of thought that come 2017, they would not be in there anymore. But obviously last year kind of helped stabilize and reinforce that they are capable of playing at the highest level. And again, this is perception. Do people perceive this program as being one of the kings? I do think people still perceive Penn State, and those other 12 schools as being one of the kings. The big storyline in this was that I demoted Nebraska, and we've talked about them before. I mean, they were, 20 years ago, they were arguably the best program in the country. I mean, they were height of college football, but I think we both agree in 2017, I don't think people look at Nebraska that way. I think they look at them as being more like Wisconsin or Michigan State in the Big Ten
1: than Ohio State or Michigan yeah and i think it takes look i think what james franklin and penn state did last year that you know if they didn't you know if they went eight and five they wouldn't have been. i don't think they would have been on your list up there i think you're right so uh because they had they had really
0: fallen off the map but they still when you have got a hundred thousand seat stadium and all the fan support that they have and the tradition that they have you're always going to be in the mix now tennessee has a hundred thousand seat stadium and not this one, but five years ago, I demoted them to the second rung. So let me ask you something, though. You're a Miami guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a common response
1: when this went out on Twitter was, why do you still have Miami, one of the Kings? Look, I think that's a that's a valid question. It's been a long time. I would think, and I'm trying to go back, uh, the year they beat Florida State in the Orange Bowl and Jared Payton had a big game, that was really the closest they've been to being on the big stage that was long, 2003 yeah Believe that's it or not a, that
0: was the last time they won more than nine games in a season um it was i said i think they'd be the next to go if, if but i do think that there's something about the you i mean if let's put it this way if miami was no longer thought of that way then nobody would care when espn
1: does catholics versus convicts you know like Yeah, Miami does for people like all these people who sit there and will show like a screenshot of a a half empty or, you know, third filled, uh, whatever the hell they call the stadium. Now, you know, before right at kickoff, Miami does huge TV ratings. It's and there is an appeal there that, you know, some of these other places where the 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 school or that town is so defined by the football program. But outside of that community, nobody really cares about that program. I mean, so it's a kind of a fickle situation. It's right kind of like Stanford here where their national reputation is
0: probably greater than their local interests would reflect. Um, now, it, Nat, Miami is not obviously on the national radar as much as they were 10 years ago by any means. But I guess the test I would use is if Mark Rick gets it rolling here, um, you're going to see them jump right back to – being one of the most talked about programs in the country because there's still, I think there's still very much a fascination with the U.
1: Yeah, look, and and they do have at least at this point a top three recruiting class. Some people have them number one at this point, so we'll see if he closes in on it. I mean, some of this is a function of uh, you know Al Golden never was able to get anything really going at Miami. So,
0: okay, this is from Sam who says. There is buzz in Columbus from the Ohio State beat writers, insiders, and message board junkies about Kevin Wilson's positive impact on the offense. There is a similar buzz about, the, about Ryan Day and how he can help JT Barrett get back to his freshman year form. I must admit, I am ecstatic about Kevin Wilson because I've seen what he did as Oklahoma's offensive coordinator and head coach in Indiana, but my optimism for Ryan Day and his impact on JT is lower, mainly because I don't know all that much about him. Can you guys shed some light on Ryan day and your thoughts on his ability to help JT and the other
1: Ohio state quarterbacks in their development? Uh, I can. Ryan day is a chip Kelly protege. Uh, he's it he was a New Hampshire guy. He had a nice run as a play caller at Boston college before their offense kind of hit the skids. Uh, he was the last, uh, he worked for chip last year in San Francisco. Obviously they had some struggles that were beyond that, but, um, He's always been, from the people I know of, thought very, very highly of him. So I think that was a really good hire. And I think I wrote about this on my after my trip on the road. Uh, th- there was a ton of buzz amongst coaches about how good of a hire Kevin Wilson is for for Ohio State. And I think that if I was a Buckeye fan, I'd be very excited because this is a team that really had some issues – Hitting big plays. And if you look back at what Kevin Wilson did in the last couple of years, Indiana, who has who traditionally not obviously been a football power, they had the top offense two years ago in the Big Ten and the top five offense in the conference, top three offense last year. And also, I went back just because I saw this question. Uh, they led the conference two years ago in most plays of 20 yards or longer. Uh, in 2015 and they were fourth the year last year so uh, I think Kevin Wilson's a great addition I think Ryan Day is a big plus Um, so much so that I am on the brink of saying this would be my preseason national title pick
0: yeah you mentioned that in the past well I think Kevin Wilson was the coordinator hire of the offseason and it's it's pretty crazy that in the last two years Urban Meyer oh we need a new DC we're gonna go get Greg Ciano. we need a new OC, we're going to go get Kevin Wilson. I mean, those are huge names to be your offensive and defensive coordinators. I'm not as familiar with Ryan Day as you are. Uh, It seems to me that, you know, at this point in J.T. Barrett's career, yes, he needs to develop more, but this isn't like you're taking a freshman quarterback and teaching him about college football. I think that the Kevin Wilson impact alone, just the putting him in a better position should help him out just as much, if not more so, than who the position coach is. I honestly don't even know how much impact a position coach has in the course of one
1: season. Well, I think they can help technique-wise and some of the things that they can stress on footwork and just the level of uh, of accountability they can kind of hone in on specifics. So I do think there's there's value under that. Um, and I think that's important. By the way, there's familiarity. He did work on this is Ryan day He did work under urban Myers, a graduate assistant for him at florida uh, I think when urban first got there. So uh, Has a really good track record as well. And um, by the way, one of his former protégés Was matt ryan. He turned out to be a pretty good nfl quarterback that he did Uh, this question is from abel while it is fairly obvious that no punishment will be levied on Baylor on behalf of the NCAA, that by no means indicates that they are are in the clear. I'm sure there will be some, if not many civil lawsuits to follow. That is true. And while Baylor loves its football, it is far from being, quote, a traditional power. So do you think that there would be ever a point where a school like Baylor simply concludes that it's not worth it to have a football program or that the lawsuits are so expensive that they're forced to shut down their football program?
0: I I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I guess the question is, even with all the fallout, even with all the lawsuits, even with the, you know, incredible stain on Baylor's reputation, is the football program in a better place than it was pre Art Bridal? I don't think there's any question. I mean, they got a stadium built, a, a relatively new stadium built. I don't think they're
1: going to suddenly not want to have a football team to play in that stadium. No, and they, they have really good facilities now, and I think the reality is, and, and this will be, you know, we'll, things will bear out over the next couple of years, um, but I think a lot of people look and go, you know what, they're going to go back to being what they were back in the, you, you know, 15 years ago where they were like 2-10, and 3-9, 4-8 and, nine, four and eight kind of program, I don't quite think it's that case because a lot of these kids who they're going to recruit, yeah, there's going to be a a big cloud over Baylor. But those kids don't remember Baylor before RG3 got there. So they just know Baylor for, you know, on the field at least from being a dynamic football, you know, style of play. And they also know the facilities are really good. Now, obviously – they're going to know that this program has a big stigma from the sexual assault scandal that cost Bryles his job. But I think if you look and say, okay, they're also probably buying in to, you know, Matt Rule, and he had a very good track record of developing players at Temple. So, you know, I think for the people looking at Twitter and looking at these horrific stories, I I get where they're coming from. But I think there is, to some degree, a disconnect from the people who, who you know, it's not like Baylor fans are going to give up attending the games. Right. I
0: mean, if, if, if they were going to ever think about de-emphasizing football, you would think it would have been during that just miserable stretch from about the mid-90s to Bryles, where they were always going 0-8 or 1-7 in the Big 12. Um, but that all being said, this thing's not going away. I mean, would they just we just got a—both of us got an email— you know, yesterday that Paula Levine and Mark Schleybaugh who have been all over this story for a year and probably longer than that for ESPN, well more than a year at this point, are putting out a book about it. You know, the, the Baylor scandal is going to continue to be in the news for a long time. And I think it's going to be a while before Matt Rule can really escape that and people just think of Baylor solely in terms of football, kind of like what Penn State just went through. But no, I don't think that means they're going to uh,
1: disband it. Yeah, and I think, and we did see a lot of people saying that Penn State should shut down football too. Once upon a time,
0: well, yes, we,
1: yes, there were a lot of people who wanted the death penalty, who wanted to shut down Penn State football. I mean, there was a lot of people. Your your former employer wanted Miami to shut down football. Well, they put was, it on the cover of the magazine. That was
0: a long time ago. <laughs> I'm just uh, saying, uh, like that's that that speaks to, right. That speaks to. You, know, you always say, and I agree with you, that Penn State kind of reset everybody's bar for what constitutes a scandal. The stuff that was going on at Miami that prompted SI to put on the cover that they should shut down football it now seems like, you know, trivial compared to Penn State and Baylor. Um, switching gears, Matt from Illinois. Hey, Bruce and Stu. Lately, there's been a lot of banter among Florida State fans about DeAndre Francois and his 2016 season. There's a growing segment of the fan base that are critiquing 2016, saying he misses too many throws and holds the ball for too long. I counter that they should stop comparing him to Jameis. What do you all think of Francois going into
1: 2017? I'm with Matt from Illinois. Uh, you know, the way Jameis played the position was was unique, and I thought he was wise beyond his years as a as a player. Uh, I liked what I saw from, from DeAndre Francois, especially from the toughness and resilience part. This is his first year as a starter. I don't think, you know, he had pretty good receivers around him. He obviously had a great running back in Dalvin Cook. But um, give him a chance. I really think that, you know, I think it was a, stro- it was a strong freshman year. If you're comparing him to, to the first year Jameis Winston had, you know, good luck. Uh, I mean, that was that's one of the
0: all-time, a, yeah. I mean, that was a Heisman season. That was one of the all-time great redshirt freshman season anyways that
1: are going to have yeah i just i just think you know are you with me like i mean i think florida state's gonna be i if i had to go to uh, right now i think florida state's gonna be a playoff team and i think it's not gonna be in spite of DeAndre francois it's gonna be in part because of DeAndre. well so we
0: had this discussion when my post spring top 25 came out and i didn't have florida state as high as you or or many people for that matter um though i still have them squarely in the top 10. And I said that my hesitation was the Florida State passing game. Now, I don't put that entirely on DeAndre Francois. I have questions about him. I have questions about who he's going to throw the ball to. I have questions about that offensive line that struggled to uh, protect him last year. But I I do think he can progress. Last year, first year starting, uh, 58.8% completions, 3,350 yards, 20 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I was a little surprised. And now, granted, we have to note that in college, sack yardage loss comes out of your rushing total. But, you know, for a, a supposed dual threat guy, uh, he was really not a factor
1: at all as a runner last year. Yeah, here's another stat that I like, especially for a young quarterback. That this, I think, bodes well. DeAndre Francois, completion percentage in the first half of games, under 54%. In the second half and overtime, 66%. That's a nice jump. That's... You know, again, I I, I like what I saw. I'm not saying he's going to be have the career Jameis Winston did on the field, but uh, I think he's I think he's he's a real bright spot for them. Next up, this is from Matt Janis. Guys, love the show. I broadcast minor league baseball for a living, so there's a ton of time to kill on the road, and you guys providing me so much enjoyable content is incredibly appreciated.
0: I had a friend in college who did that briefly for a couple of years out of college was trying to get into broadcasting and, and I mean, I, I don't know if this is math experience, but like he had, to, he didn't just broadcast the games. He had to also, you know, sell the sponsorships and, and do the promotion. I mean, it was, you're, you're a one man band in minor league baseball. It sounded like, um, and you know, our friend Joel Klatt was a minor league baseball player who tells all kinds of crazy stories from his time. It must, he must
1: have some wild stories from, from that gig. Yes, I'm sure uh, my buddy Joe Davis, actually similar to what you're talking about. And he's a you know, his career's taken off in a hurry. But Joe, right out right out of college, right at college, I think, was doing double A baseball as well. Um, and now he's been Scully. Now he's been Scully. Yeah, uh, I know you've touched on this topic before, but I find it striking how far the gap between the perception of the national media varies from the viewpoint of Notre Dame fans on Brian Kelly. I understand you said Notre Dame isn't truly committed to winning at all costs like other programs. But in seven years, Kelly is averaging more than five losses per season. Heck, he's not even been as successful as Stu's favorite coach. Houston Nutt was at Arkansas. College football has changed and Notre Dame isn't the major power it used to be. But can you guys go a little deeper into why you and most of your brethren in the media think Irish football fans shouldn't expect more than what they've gotten over the last half dozen years? Good question. Hold on. I'm
0: fact-checking this. Is is Houston Nutt really had – let's see. Houston Nutt was 75-48 and at Arkansas in 10 seasons. So he averaged 4.8
1: losses per season. Brian Kelly – because, you know, you wouldn't have done this if it was if he had said Tommy Tuberville. No, I wouldn't. But have. Because, or somebody else, but because he said Houston nut, a burr went into your figurative saddle, and this is what we got.
0: So no, this is not right about Brian Kelly. He's fifty nine and thirty one in eight seasons, so he's averaging about four losses per season, not five. Aha. I'm not saying that's great by any means, but um and certainly, I think, I'm sure all of the national media soured on him a little bit after last season. But, gosh, you know, how quickly have Notre Dame fans forgotten about Charlie Weiss, uh, Tyrone Willingham, Bob Davey? They weren't, there were no peaks really during. I mean, Charlie Weiss had those two seasons right at the beginning, but there was no run to the national championship game like Notre Dame had in Kelly's third season. I would argue that his 2015 team that lost to Ohio State in the Festival was as good if not better a team as they ever had prior to him you know between Holtz and him getting there so um, he's had some good teams there he has not had as consistent a success as I think Notre Dame fans are probably entitled to and there's no question that he goes into this season uh, very much on the hot seat but it was just I, I think the disconnect was they went 10-3 and and had by all accounts a great season finished uh, 12th in the country in 2015 the next year, they have a disastrous 4-8 season, and Notre Dame fans want to fire him, whereas people like you and me are like, well, wait a minute. They were just 10-3 last year, Like, you know." and he went to the national championship game. Give him a chance. He deserves another year.
1: Yeah, and some of that, I think, was his fewest wins since he was there prior to last year was eight. I mean, that's pretty solid, especially considering they do have a challenging schedule. They do but, have challenges. But
0: that's what he's saying, right? Notre Dame fans don't consider eight and five to be acceptable. And he has had a lot of eight and he's had yeah. three eight and five seasons and one nine and four season.
1: Here's the, the reality, I think, and some of this is a function of you said something that kind of kind of uh, jumped out of me when he first said it, and I shouldn't know it, but this is coming up on year eight. That is a long time for NADW to be a head coach anywhere now, much less as a head coach at Notre Dame. I know, right? I mean, that's like dog years. You know, Tyrone Willingham, how many years? He didn't even get half that time. You, I would have thought if you'd asked me in, after they went to the National Championship
0: game, I would have assumed Brian Kelly would have left by now. Like, would have said, I don't want to, you know, I don't have to deal with all the this stuff here that you don't have to deal with at other schools. I'm going to go to the NFL or I'm going to go to another college and maybe – Maybe those opportunities haven't been as, um, ha- as as plentiful as we might think. Let's also – we haven't even mentioned, I think a big part of the Brian Kelly backlash is the sideline – his face getting red and yelling yes, at guys on the sideline right. and throwing players under the bus in press conferences. I think that probably irritates them not as much as the losing, but it just makes the losing feel that much worse.
1: Yeah. By the way, can I throw this out there? Yeah. Um, Charlie Weiss, you mentioned, had a couple of good years. If he didn't have Brady Quinn, he he wouldn't have – he would have probably never got that second contract. Are you saying that because you spend every week with Brady (laughs) Quinn during the season? (laughs) I feel guilty I didn't throw his name in the top 50 players thing. Here's the one thing I want to get to. Just when you look at that, your Notre Dame, here's here's where I was kind of heading with that. He's been there eight years. Yeah, Deshaun Kaiser – You know, is very talented, but Notre Dame has not had a big time running back. It's been so long since Notre Dame has had a big time running back, and but at this point, that's on him. It is no, I, I I agree, but it's like the quarterback play for a lot of that time, and really, it's just been just okay. And you're thinking, where are these guys who should be Heisman candidates?
0: I remember during leading up to and during that 2015 season on this podcast, you kept saying you were a big believer, and you kept saying, "Like I know people have said this before, and you might not want to believe me, but believe me, this is an extremely athletic team with a whole it bunch was. of NFL well, look players." What had. Yeah, I, I mean, it was no. I'm saying it turned you turned out to be absolutely correct. But I guess the disappointment is then what happened after they left. What, what you know, shouldn't he be able to build on that? Shouldn't they not just go right back to? looking slow and, and, you know, incompetent on defense and not having, I mean, last year's team had no pass rushers. Dalen Hayes, they think, could become that guy this year. You know, shouldn't Notre Dame recruit at the level where, like Ohio State, like so many of these teams, they just
1: reload? Yeah, I I don't know. So so give me a comparison for you. of another of one of your king's programs are they more like michigan are they more like penn state are they more like nebraska where do you where do you feel the reality of notre dame football is right now
0: well first of all i remember we we had that other question and i about which teams can realistically win the national championship and i said every one of those kings but notre dame notre dame's prestige is kind of um they were able to maintain that prestige despite that disconnect. But uh, I, how do you compare them? I mean, it's just it's such a they're, – they're the only big independent school, obviously, other than BYU. And because of that, how do you compare them to anybody else? They're in such a unique situation. You could say, oh, they're like Michigan because they're in that part of the country. But, you know, it's – And it's, then they both recruit not, nationally. I mean. Yeah, they, well, Notre Dame has to more so than Michigan. And Michigan still gets a lot of players out of their – uh, backyard, or, or maybe out of Ohio, which Notre Dame recruits as well. You could say, are they similar to Nebraska? Nebraska certainly has to recruit nationally. Notre Dame still recruits
1: better than Nebraska does. I, I don't. Do you have a comparison? I think they're they're one of a kind. Oh, I, I think they're one of a kind too. But I'm just saying, I think Notre Dame can win a national title. It's it's. No, I'm not saying they will certainly this year, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. But you need a lot of factors to go in your way. And if you if you can win ten games at that level playing the schedule they do, you have a shot. Now do they have as much of a shot as Alabama? No. But the reality is most, you know, of those King's programs that we're talking about aren't on the same playing field. You know, so Notre Dame uh,
0: got to the national championship game. The only time they've been there in the last almost thirty years. And it became obvious from the first series that they weren't remotely in the same class as the team they were playing. And so that's why I say that. Could they make the playoff? Sure. Um, Michigan State made the playoff a couple years ago. Washington made the play. Any A lot of teams can make the playoff. It's once you get there, can you beat two teams of king,
1: you know, recruiting caliber? I don't know that they can. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. We'll see. It depends what the matchup was. So here's a, just a hypothetical to you, because I think that – and I think I referenced this earlier about what it did for me, C.J. Mosley, compared to Manti Teo and all these things. Georgia gave Alabama a, a heck of a game there. They lost by four points, 32-28. Yeah, the C.J. Mosley uh,
0: deflection saved the game.
1: Yeah, so that's more more credence to C.J. Mosley. Um, it's hindsight. It doesn't re- really matter, but – how do you think they would have done if they ended up playing that Georgia team who ended up beating Nebraska in the Capital One Bowl? Um, so,
0: let's think. Them. That Georgia team was
1: Aaron Murray. That Georgia team got smoked at South Carolina. I was there. Was never
0: in a, I was at that Georgia-South Carolina game. Never in a million years that night would I have thought they were going to end up coming within a few seconds of uh, reaching the BCS championship game. They weren't Alabama. I don't think they would have come out and just steamrolled them like um, – Alabama did, but they've definitely, you know, were a more, um, athletic and talented team. And let me just look up here. So Aaron Murray, I believe was a third or fourth year quarterback on that team. Uh, that was Gurley, Gurley and Marshall in the backfield on that team. Um, oh shoot. What's his name? The, def- the uh, Jarvis Jones. Remember how good he was, uh, on defense? I know he hasn't really, uh, done much in the NFL since then. Um, by the way, the one thing I always remember about that Alabama team, like everybody remembers Eddie Lacy just steamrolling Notre Dame in that game, and obviously he's gone on to great success, but that was a weird year, situation where he wasn't, like, for most of that season nobody was thinking Eddie Lacy was even in the same category as the other great Alabama running backs, and then he just came on, um, at the end of that year. That Georgia team was Jarvis Jones, Alec Ogletree, John Jenkins all on defense, um, Todd Gurley, Chris Conley at receiver, obviously. Pro- not, I mean, all credit for giving Alabama the game they did, but no, not on the level of that team. But I know, I think they would have handled Notre Dame.
1: Probably so. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Alec Oldigrish was the was the guy on the defense with Jarvis Jones. And remember, this
0: was the BCS where it was one game. The reason I am skeptical going forward is you got to win two. Okay. Thank you for indulging me on that. Uh, Travis Trader from St. Louis, as far as making predictions go, isn't it the easiest prediction to make this season that the Big 12 championship game result will knock that conference's playoff contender out of the playoff? It only seems like poetic justice that this will happen because the Big 12 has become like the BCS of the past, trying to tweak the formula to fit the previous season's issues, but having no foresight for what's on the horizon. Yeah, I could see that happening.
1: I could see that happening, too. So okay. they
0: doctor, So we think, you and I think Oklahoma and Oklahoma State are the you know, two best teams in that conference. I don't know if that's how it'll play out, but that's what we think going into it. So they kind of manipulated the schedule. Those teams usually play at the end of the season. They manipulated the schedule, and they're now going to play in early November just in case they were going to end up having a rematch in the championship game. And remember, no divisions. So whoever the top two teams are at the end of the year, two best records, they're going to play. So, And that, by the way, is something I disagreed with. I thought they should add a championship game. I think that not having the 13th game was a disadvantage. But remember, in some of these other conferences, with unbalanced divisions, that last game doesn't necessarily have to be against the next best team in the conference. It always will be
1: for the Big 12 yeah okay uh next question this is harkens back to our lavar ball question from a couple weeks ago from andrew and dayton if allowing fcs coaches in your list my choice for the coach least likely to put up a lavar ball is youngstown state's bo pelini
0: that's a good one we've actually gotten a lot of really good suggestions i think the, 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 the 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 common theme is that most college football coaches are hard asses who would not put up with Lavar Ball. Paul Johnson was mentioned. Um, Kirk Ferentz has been thrown out there a lot for this for this answer, um, but Bo Pelini—that would be fascinating.
1: That would be fascinating. That would be fascinating.
0: This last thing is an interesting one. I I don't have a great answer for it, but
1: maybe you will because you've covered. Hey, while we're s- while we're on Bo Pelini, you think? He's ever a FBS head coach again? FBS, certainly possible. Power five, probably not. Okay. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, he's young enough where he could be. It's not like he has a good record. I just don't know what he needs to show, you know, in terms of temperament-wise. You know, it depends on who's the AD, I guess. Yeah, I
0: think the temperament part's going to scare people away. But, I mean, they played for the national championship last year. If they keep doing that on a regular basis yeah i would imagine he will become a hot coach much like craig bull did yes okay the last thing johnny she now this question i don't have a great answer for it but i'm hoping you do just because you've covered Super Bowls. hi gents i always look forward to the audible i save them up for my afternoon cigar break on the deck i light up a cigar and hit play on my ipad and listen and learn that is the first time i've ever heard anybody say they listen to it with a cigar
1: Actually, Dave Wanstead, I think, always lights up a stogie when he listens to the podcast. He That's just doesn't feel like he learns anything, and I don't think he does it <laughs> on his iPad. All of those things, I think, are true. He, he gets the podcast on his or at home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of the things I have wondered about is how much you guys liked Tampa when you discussed attending the game between Alabama and Clemson. I was surprised because I heard so much griping from the writers after Tampa hosted its first Super Bowl there. And he links to a Fox Sports list on our own site where it was named Tampa's named number 10 on the 15 worst venues for Super Bowls. Can you explain why you liked it
1: versus its bad reputation? Is it a college versus pros thing? Uh, I would guess why we liked it had something to do with it was a little bit new. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the people who put it on did a pretty nice job. Look, I don't—I think one thing that's maybe different with—, with uh, uh. In, our, in regards to college football versus NFL, I think is there is less, less expectation of glitz and a presentation and a big spectacle aspect with with the uh, people who put on the playoff as opposed to the people who put on a Super Bowl. I mean, it's way more of a marketing, you know, big business deal for the Super Bowl compared to what you know our expectations are. Well,
0: college. I mean, for a lot of people, Super Bowl week is basically just a big party week with celebrities and. and and whatnot, and that's not the college football playoff, so I couldn't tell you if Tampa is a good or bad city for decadent, celebrity-filled Super Bowl parties or not, but for our purposes, where you're only there for, we get on Friday, and the game's Monday, there's media day on Saturday, you know, there's some small events, you know, there's concerts,
1: but it's not the Super Bowl by any means, yeah, I thought it was really cool. That's my feeling, Stu, is just like, you know, we liked it, I wouldn't say I loved it, but... It was, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Um, What I would ask you, though, is two things. One, if you were in charge of the playoff, where is your favorite spot to have it? And two, what is the city not in the rotation you'd most be intrigued to have have the playoff at? I'm going to take off my sports
0: writer hat because I think we judge these things for sometimes for reasons that aren't particularly relevant to the public. Like what's the media hotel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: It's honest. I mean that's that is you spend a bunch of your time yeah. there. So I'll
0: tell you, I'm surprised that I mean they've they now know the sites through the first six years. I'm surprised Indianapolis hasn't gotten one. It's such a great site for the final four. It's kinda like what we described in Tampa where everybody's in one place. Now obviously in early January it would not be ideal weather. Um, I think a lot of people in Big Ten country in particular were hoping, though, that if the intent of the playoff truly is to take it to all different parts of the country, which it is, it's coming to the Bay Area next year, um, that it would go to a cold weather city at some point. And that would be my vote if you were going to do it, uh, if you if you were going to do one of those. But in terms of like regular rotation, um, I'd say New Orleans.
1: Uh, I would say I still like uh, Arizona. Well,
0: <laughs> I love I Arizona. A lot of that I'd like so to have well. it there
1: every year, but I don't know if it's for the right reasons. I would not say New Orleans. I would not say because keep in mind Arizona
0: is one of the places where it's all it's very spread
1: out. It is spread out. Look, it's really spread out from the the DFW part is spread yeah. out. I feel like pretty much all of it is spread out.
0: I mean, wait till it comes here. I don't know how they're gonna. Like, I'm very, you know, looking forward to having the National Championship game here. I don't... I'm a little skeptical of how it's going to do because, first of all, this is one of the more apathetic parts of the country toward college football, but also the game is in Santa Clara. You don't want to... Nobody's going to want to spend four days in Santa Clara. No offense, Santa Clara people. They're all going to want to be in San Francisco, and then you're going to have to get down to the game on a Monday during rush hour. It's, you know, it could be an hour and a half
1: drive, so... We shall see. I have a place that I would I think I would like to see it and it has a awesome like uh, home stadium. it's loud as heck. it has character and that is Seattle.
0: I love Seattle. Um, that would be cool actually. that would be really cool. That would be a great place to have it. I guess the concern would be you know, given the propensity of for southeastern teams to be in the national championship game,
1: that couldn't be much further from them. But, uh, yeah, that would be really cool. I mean, it's still a hike to get to where you live. And it's yeah. pretty much a hike to get to where I live. So Interestingly, I, just...
0: I haven't seen any, you know, in the cities that bid on I've never seen Seattle mentioned as a city that would bid on it. It's uh, the ones who have tried to get it but haven't succeeded yet are Orlando. Uh, San Antonio has definitely tried. Um, I think people are expecting Minneapolis to bid in the future. I have not seen Seattle mentioned
1: i think i lived there for a year i can't say i want to i, I love living there but it was uh i don't know I, I just think it would be a very interesting place to have something like that
0: i'm just trying to think off the top of my head how many cities well of course the newcomer onto the scene is going to be vegas i as soon as that was announced that the raiders are, are in fact moving there that was my first question would the college football playoff possibly stage the national championship game there that would be something
1: you love that whole tie into legalized prostitution, don't you?
0: <laughs> I mean, no, it's not, it's not that at all. It's just a really, really fun city. And let's let's say let's say your team let's say they put it in Vegas, and you know, the thing about the college football championship is it's so expensive. Like you, you're basically saying, unless you're super rich, you're basically saying like, this is my vacation for at least this year, if not the next several years. We're going to throw thousands of dollars down to fly to this place and spend several night hotel there. and God knows what the ticket costs. So maybe if it's your team and it's in uh, Arizona, you're like, oh, I'm not interested enough to go. Is anybody going to turn it down if it's in Vegas?
1: No. And you always know there's going to be a store. You know that expression, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It never stays in Vegas. And so I don't know I keep... how anything could stay in Vegas.
0: <laughs> I, so I'm trying to think. I used to go to Vegas a lot when I was young,
1: younger. Um,
0: I have not been since 2010. I wonder how many people get in trouble now who go to Vegas for a bachelor party or whatnot, and the pictures end up on Instagram or
1: Snapchat or something. Yeah, I actually had a, a buddy's bachelor party, and it was actually the same weekend as your bachelor party, in fact. Um, that was there for that. I do remember... One of the last times I was in Vegas, which was the weirdest thing I've ever seen, and hopefully I can tell this story. You and Lindsay will be the judge of it if it, if, if it doesn't make airtime, it doesn't. Uh, so I was there for a day. Uh, UNLV was hosting Wazoo, it was like Leach's second game, and then I was going up to the Bay Area to see Stanford USC. And I had a late night. I pretty much went right from being at a bar to McCarran. And it's whatever it is, five fifteen in the morning, and I walk into the bathroom and it is able, you know, it's a long row of, of urinals and I see a man stooped over like he is taking a dump in the urinal. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen this before.
0: Um, I don't see any reason we have to cut that, but it is really gross.
1: It was, it's just like something that was so shocking to see, like of all the odd things I've ever seen in, a, in an airport, that was like my, you know, the thing that was like kind of stayed with me.
0: The Vegas airport in general is one of the more depressing places you can find. Um, everybody's really excited when they land. And then, you, especially if you're on one of those red eyes back, everybody is either super hungover or super depressed because they lost so much money.
1: I almost never, you never, never hear of anybody saying, you know what? I could have used six more hours in Vegas. No, you really don't. And then I think the
0: most depressing thing of all is the slot machines in the airport there. Yeah. It's like – you're that hard up to gamble that you can't either, you know, wait till you get to, wait till you leave the airport or, you know, you couldn't, you didn't get enough of it already and you're going to do it just a little
1: bit more before that, before you board the flight. My first time there, I spent a week, I was working on a basketball story and it was in July. It was hot as could be in my car, you know, like my rental car would tell me is 107 degrees now or whatever. And... I was around a team, and it was like the Harlan Globe Trotters had two different teams. One was like a, a kind of a real team, and the other one was the one that you see as a little kid. And so they were staying, I want to say, at the Hotel San Remo. And I was with some of those guys, and Olden Polynes, you remember him? Oh yeah. It was Olden Polynes, Kareem Reed, and a bunch of other like guys. You you know, if you're a college basketball fan, you'd remember them. But I remember Olden Polynes like shooting dice in this casino, surrounded by like eighty year old people. And uh, I was like, yeah, this is kind of depressing.
0: Wow. You never know what direction this thing's going to go when we do these mailbags. I did not think we would end up with a big Vegas discussion, but I'm glad we did. Good stories all around. And as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I mean, we had so many good ones this week that we ended up devoting a whole episode to it. And as always, please subscribe to the Ottawa on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Tell any of your friends about it. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time.